So it's Sunday, May the 29th, and we're looking at our next lesson from our series from License to Kill, The Mortification of Sin by Brian Hedges. And uh, we've taken this sixth chapter that we're in. This will be our third lesson from the sixth chapter, which fleshes it out pretty good. As I've said, I know when I teach this in the His Steps ministry, I usually go just chapter by chapter, more of an overview. But there's a lot here. And uh, we're going we're gonna to cover it as best we can. Last week we continued our study by following Brian Hedges' lead and looking at what Colossians, particularly Colossians chapter 3, uh, has to uh, give us regarding, as I presented it, a more positive approach or information in the positive about what we can do to be overcomers in our life and what Christ has done for us. That's always our foundation that we reflect back upon, but we looked at that, talked about the the victorious life, looked at a couple of topics that push us on through, because Paul gives us uh, some lists. He gives some lists in this third chapter here of Colossians that help us. You might think that today's list is negative, but it's really not. It's more of a picture of a, a parent, you know, putting their arm around a child and warning them about the hazards of the roadway, you know, on a rainy night and so forth. You might say, well, that's negative information. And you're always worried about what could happen, Mom. You know, that kind of thing. But that's not the thing here. Paul wants us to remember the truth of God's Word. He wants us to remember how subtle sin can be. And he enumerates uh, some things here that we're going to look at. So last week, we actually deviated from chapter 3 a bit to go over to Philippians 4.8, where Paul does give us, as we might say, a very positive uh, list of things to literally think about. You'll recall we talked about you know, those things that are noble, those things that are just, as he says, those things that are pure, those things that are lovely, those things that are of good report. And he ended that by saying you know, virtually anything, anything that's virtuous by its very nature that's positive, that's good, that's right, that's upright. He said, that's what you need to think on. Things that are praiseworthy. You know, things that can accompany you. Look at it this way. There are things, attitudes, actions, words that can accompany you into the presence of God. That is to say, think about yourself always before the presence of God because rest assured, we are. Nothing escapes His attention. Nothing escapes His detail whether it's an omission or a mere thought, of which he says we'll give an account of all those idle ones, he says, those, those irresponsible thoughts, even the things that we, we check ourselves on. You ever do that? You ever think to yourself, why, why am I thinking like that? Why did that pass through my head? That's not the direction I'm going, and yet, as we say, the flesh will raise its ugly head and we have the privilege of calling it what it is and forsaking it and moving on. So that's where we're, we're going. So Paul thought it necessary to sit down and to write, of course, at the unction of the Holy Spirit, to sit down and to write for us um, guidelines, specifics. You know, in his day, yes, for the church at Colossae and Laodicea, the other places he wanted this letter to be read. These were the things that were on his mind while he was in prison there. He knew what the people needed to hear. He knew his audience. He knew that the church was made up of a lot of Gentiles with some Jewish influence. He knew that. He knew what was going on. He loved and cared about those to whom he had spiritual charge. 
So that's why we have it today, and uh, I'm thankful for it. So before we jump into it, let's have a word of prayer together. Well, we embarked this morning on some verses. If you've looked at them, beginning with verse 5, I don't know how far we'll go. I think I'm prepared to go through verse 11. I really don't think we'll get that far, but uh, we're going to start in verse 5. And the, the motif, as far as the type of information Paul has given us here, begins to change a little bit. And he moves into this area of sexual relationships. We're looking at uh, chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. Colossians. Yeah. Um, and that's where we are. So, right up front, it's always amazing when you look through the New Testament and even just a cursory reading of the New Testament. If you take a, a red pen or maybe a black pen would be more appropriate, and you underline all the references to sexual conduct, sexual thought, sexual influences, there's a lot of them in there. And I always find it interesting uh, when Paul and other writers, when they're talking about uh, giving Christians uh, a set of guidelines, if you will, to walk by, reminding them of things that are there to trip them up and to pull on them. He always goes to this area. And of course, we know in our day and time uh, how important and how deadly this issue is. We've seen it maybe not bring down, but certainly lessen the influence of a president. We've seen that. We've seen it wreck and derail the lives of preachers, teachers of the Word. We've seen it happen that way. We've seen it raise its ugly head in the lives of people in entertainment. There's a prominent one right now whose whole life is about to be on display in civil court, and he's a, a, a comedian who's supposed to be geared toward the things of the family, more family-oriented and so forth. And he finds himself in civil court with accusations that uh, are... Uh, True enough to land him in court. So there he is when all that's going to be exposed. We've seen professional athletes, golfers, and others brought down when the truth of their lives and their uh, indiscretionate activities in this area have become known. It's damaging and destructive. And no doubt that's why Paul and the others talk about it and keep it before us. Uh, one of the things that you have to do, I know when you teach or preach from such a subject is you want to make sure that every word that comes out of your mouth has no inkling of worldliness, none whatsoever. That we talk about what the Scripture says. We don't bypass it. We don't go around it. And I'm aware that in this day and time, and, and thankful that there's still many of us, hopefully, <laughs> that still have a strong sensibility toward anything sexual, any words that are used. So I think all we have to do is stay with the Scriptures, stay with what the Bible says, and God will do His work in teaching us what we need to know about this area because virtually from verse 5 through 8, that's, that's what He's talking about in some form or some fashion which should speak to us because Paul is taking this subject. He deals with it in general in verse 5 and then he kind of begins to break it down and that allows the reader, that allows the discerning Christian in whom the Spirit of God and the Word is working. That allows them to look at specific things in their life and deal with them lest we be overtaken by the subtleties, the subtleties of sin, the subtleties of Satan in our life. So that's where we're at as we look at this. In many ways, it's a sobering topic. 
perhaps because in our society today, I'm sure you will agree, uh, we are absolutely bombarded with this issue, are we not? At least from a, and from a commercial perspective. What do they say? That little two-word phrase, sex sells. And many people, you can sell lipstick or I've seen hamburger commercials from Wendy's and others, you know, trying to, you know, I guess suggest in your mind that somehow a sexual experience is related to a cheeseburger. I don't know how, but they do a pretty good job. They do a pretty good job. You know, the one where they're finding, they're on the couch and they're trying to find the change. They actually got that commercial stopped. Uh, a couple on a couch, a young couple, teenage couple, hugging and kissing, and then all of a sudden their mind change down in the couch. Have you seen it? It didn't run very long, so they get up and go to Wendy's instead. You know, why go there? You know, but that's what we live with in our day. I mean, we're bombarded with it. Now, how many of you find yourselves just kind of backing off from that and, and maybe even to the point where you really, you, you kind of lose some sensitivity to it because it's always out there. And you know who suffers from that? Our children suffer from that because we don't tend to back off from those things like we used to perhaps, either, either by our actions or by our words. And we want to draw a very, very clear line in the sand. We want to be distinguishably different. We want people to take note that we've been with Christ. We are, like the Israelites, a peculiar people because Christ and His sanctification in our lives changes our lives. We are to lose those appetites and we're to embrace other things in our life. So let's move right on to verse 5 where Paul tells us, he says, therefore, and here we phrase again, and this is kind of the, the focal phrase of our entire study in the mortification of sin. Therefore, because of those things, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he lists them. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which he says is idolatry. Of course, when he says therefore, he's talking about those first four verses that we covered last week. Because of those things, because of the reality of those more positive things, you might say, put to death. It's like he takes this big swing, he takes us back to those things which can derail us. And through the Spirit, he talks specifically here about mortification and names these things, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, if you Think back to where we were last week, you may have a tendency to say, now wait a minute, we've already learned from Romans 6, 6 and Galatians 2, 20 and other verses about the old man, about being crucified with Christ. We know that that is our position. We've looked at the, this body of sin, as we said, it needs to be done away with, as it says in 6, 6, has been done away with, that we should no longer live as slaves to sin. And you may have a tendency to say, well, wait, haven't we covered this? I mean, aren't we, haven't we already established where we are? Well, yes, we have. But what's he talking about here? Why are we still talking then about putting things to death? At this point, now Paul in Romans 6 6, you're looking around AD 56 when he wrote that. Verse 5 of Colossians is up to AD 61. Okay, somewhere in there. So, why are we back talking about this? Well, he's talking, quite frankly, as we've said before, the positional versus the practical. Paul moves from where we are in Christ to our practicality in living out the Word of God. Is this not what we're about today? 
our sanctification. We'll speak about that again in a little bit. Uh, uh, MacArthur in his commentary, he talks about doctrine versus practice. Doctrine versus practice being uh, exemplified here. This is what Paul is doing. And a good teacher, you can't go without doctrine, can you? I've shared with you before, maybe more than once, but it always dumbfounds me when I think of a former pastor that I used to sit under who assured me that doctrine divided. He, he avoided it in the pulpit, that doctrine divided. I'm no longer in that. I'm here. Okay. <laughs> You're right. And rightly so. It does its work, does it not? But we don't want to avoid it. <laughs> no, we want to do what we're doing today, I trust. Well, one sure evidence, of course, and perhaps, and I think, the most clear evidence, apart from the infilling of the Holy Spirit for the believer, that, that proof, if you will, that a person belongs to Christ is the life lived. Is it not? It's the changed life. There's no evidence in God's Word that we can live any way we want to live, as we call it today, this antinomianism, that we can do whatever we want. Hey, because I've been born again, okay? Because my sins are paid for. They were paid for on the cross. And God understands. And He's made me human, and so on and so forth. What He's done is provided us His inerrant Word. He's provided us the infilling of the Holy Spirit to cause us to move forward in our sanctification. This is His desire for us, and we'll read that specifically in just a moment. So this is why we go back and look at it. We make this distinction between the position, uh, the positional and the practical. We make the distinction about doctrine and practice and how they come together for our good. He tells us in Romans 6.11 that we are to consider our body as dead as we yield to the Spirit of the Word of God. This is to be our mindset. And the way we do that is a number of ways, but we do that, first of all, by filling ourselves with the Word of God. Again, before we can do that, we have to be emptied, do we not? He'll use the example once again of taking off, putting on. The same thing he would use, same thing he would say if he's talking about taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. Is that We have to identify those things in our life that the Bible condemns. We have to do that. We do that because of our love for Christ. We do, we do that because now we know that that is the key. That is the key to uh, uh, you know, pleasing God, satisfying God. That's the key to uh, strength in our life of service, our life in the Spirit. Without that, we can't do it. We have to remember that it's these sins that separate us from God. And it's not just talking about an eternal sense. It's talking about in our, in our power, in our usefulness to God even in this life. So we, we look at that specifically. When Paul speaks of your members here, he says to mortify your members or to put to death your members. I understand that he has in mind sins that are associated with those members. And I only give, it, give that to you to let you know just how specific the language of Paul in his day was to his hearers or to those that would read this. You know, was it Epaphras? He would take this and read it you know, to the churches and so forth. It's interesting, too, as we look at that, you know, you know, I'm up here talking about these things, preparing to talk about them, as, as every person who preaches or teaches does. And I often think, well, Paul had it easier because he sat down and wrote this out, okay? And <laughs> said, so, you know, go forth and, and preach it, you know. And I'm sure he did, obviously, at other places. Uh, but it's some heavy stuff. So hang on. Now, we're down to... Um, 
Let's see. Well, I did want to speak just a moment when he's talking about this issue about your members, identifying your members and those, those sins that uh, are associated with your members. You know, it reminded me back at Mark 9, uh, 45 through 50, where that's where Jesus is talking about, you know, what does he say? If your foot offends, you cut it off. He says, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. And we know he's not talking literally there. He's not talking about asceticism. He's not talking about beating yourself physically and all that kind of thing. That kind of activity, legalism, never helped anybody overcome anything in their life. But it does tell us uh, the seriousness of it. That's the message that Christ is putting forth in Mark chapter 9 there. He's telling us how important this is. You know, we would say today, as other scriptures, take that surgical scalpel of the Word and the Holy Spirit of God and cut this out of your life. That's what he's saying. You don't need that. And Christ made the example. He closed both those remarks there in chapter 9 of Mark. He says, because it's better what? It's better to enter heaven maimed, if you'll allow me to paraphrase, than to enter hell whole. That's what he said. That's how important it was. If Christ, and he is, standing here teaching us through his word, that's what he would say. I get the feeling sometimes like he wants to grab us and say, you know, listen, wake up. You know, I'm telling you something you need to know. Just how serious this is. We need to wake up in our day and time, in our culture, in our environment about these things. And yes, it'll bring undue pressure on you. It'll be, it'll be difficult sometimes in the break room at work. It'll be difficult. You'll be a, you'll be a fuddy-duddy, okay? You'll be a, what, a, a holy roller or I don't know, whatever. You know, people will actually accuse you of thinking that you're better than they are, Okay? Well, I think it all goes in how we present ourselves. We can do it lovingly or we can do it arrogantly. You know, we can do it that way. We don't want to do that. So listen to what the Word of God says. Now, he begins with fornication. Now, he's talking about immorality in general. Any sexual activity. Why is this important? Well, the Word, and you've been exposed to this before, the Word is pornea. You know, that's where we get our word, pornography. But it's an all-encompassing word. It means any and every kind of sexual involvement. Why is that important today? Why is that important? Because the world has tried to take some of the English terms that we use and narrow them down. I'll say this publicly because it happened publicly, happened nationally. We had a president get on TV one night and say this, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Those were his very words. Well, by his definition, he didn't. But by God's definition, he did. And what he did was fornication. If you go to the, to the uh, Webster's Dictionary and read it, you look up the word fornication, you'll get an entire different, you'll get a much more narrow definition. But what we have rendered here from the Word of God is much, much broader than that. So there's a danger there. You know, don't go to the world. Don't look at the world's definitions. Look at what the Word of God says. Because that's the first step for folks who, who want to see, and we use this analogy, who want to see just how close they can get to the fire without getting burned, right? They'll use that. And especially in a young teenage mind. We want to, we want to teach them rightly. And the best way to do that is through the specifics of God's Word. What does He tell us to do with this? What does Paul tell us to do and other writers? We are to flee 
flee, run from sexual immorality. That's what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 says, Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. All sin is against God. We understand that, don't we? God is the most offended. He's the number one being offended in any sin we undertake, whatever it is. But we also can sin, as the Bible says, against our own body. We can do that. And we know we can sin against our brother, can we not? We can sin against our sister. We can do that. And here he's talking about sinning against your own body. And for whatever reason, it appears that sexual sin always brings its own brand of consequences into our life. We see that. And we may enumerate those later, but just, just hang on to that right now because I want to focus on what he says here at the beginning of this verse. He says to flee sexual immorality. Identify it and run from it. Don't mess with it. Don't, don't hang around it. Don't deal with it. Don't get close to it. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about from the Word of God perhaps when you think about somebody fleeing sexual immorality? Any examples in the Word of God? i got a few of them here. Yeah, Joseph. Joseph, man, he had it tough, didn't he? He didn't do anything. God was with him. Point is, the situation found Joseph, did it not? The situation found him. He wasn't looking for it, but Potiphar's wife was looking for it. And on more than one occasion, I think we have a couple listed there in Genesis chapter 39, verse 12. And she finally became forceful with him. And it says he ran out of his coat. He did the wise thing. Hundreds and hundreds of years before it was written here, he knew what to do. He knew to run from it. And that's what he did. And he began, he suffered anyway, but God didn't leave him, did he? No, God took care of him. Or 2 Timothy 2, 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, flee youthful lust. Paul to Timothy. He's talking to a young preacher there. He's talking about not only his own life, which would hinder him, of course, in hearing the Spirit of God, preaching the Word, uh, but in teaching the Word to others as well. Flee youthful us. Galatians 5.16 reminds us that we are to walk in the Spirit. And if we do walk in the Spirit, if that is our desire, it tells us plainly. I love the practicality. I love the simplicity. Walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because they're antithetical. You can't, you can't fill a jar with oil and water. You know, they, they displace one another. Well, it's the same here. That's why we keep talking about taking off and putting on, getting rid of things before we can get the right things in. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then another practical admonition from Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses 14, where he says, make no provision for the flesh. One translation says, make no occasion for the flesh. A little forethought. Being responsible for where you go and who you go with and the activities that you're going to be involved in. The Word of God says to make no provision. Don't give it a chance. Barney Fife theology. Nip it in the bud. That's what he says. Nip it. I'm all for that. And that's what the Word of God is telling us to do. If we lose our sensibilities, if we lose that, then we become brought in, you know, subjected to, if you will, the same areas of influence that will bring us down. 
and cost us greatly. That's what we're looking at. And then he tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, same Paul, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And He's right there with you. He's in you. Whom you have from God and you are not your own. We lose perspective when we start longing for the things of the world, whatever they are. Today we're talking about this kind of thing. Maybe tomorrow we'll be talking about something else. But today... It's this topic, and he tells us to stay away from it. We're not our own. Remember who you belong to. The very next verse in verse 20 is where he says, you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. (coughs) Excuse me, you've been bought with a price. And then again, he'll reverb that again in chapter 7, verse 23 in 1 Corinthians. You've been bought with a price. And brothers and sisters, how, how important is it for us this morning to reflect on the fact Not only as we've looked at that this is not our home, that we don't live here, we're pilgrims, we're passing through, but that we belong to someone else. We belong to Christ. First and foremost, you know, I enjoy the marriage relationship. I enjoy thinking about how my wife belongs to me and I belong to her. But unless I belong to Christ, she don't want me. I can assure you. And vice versa. We belong... To Christ, that changes everything, changes everything for us. And then to the church at Thessalonica, he reverbs it again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. You have it again. As I said, Paul keeps up with his theme from time to time because he knows his audience. He knows the danger. This is God's will for your life. He's moving us forward in our sanctification. And we are to do as Daniel did. We are to purpose in our heart that we will not defile ourselves. And you, you, you're tempted, and there, there are whole religions that say, you know, you're making too much of all this because God has already taken care of this. I'm saved, I'm sealed, all that has happened. And we can't take that attitude and discount what our role is in our daily sanctification. We, we demonstrate to God that we love Him. We demonstrate by our words and actions that we are different. We demonstrate that the life of Christ within us is real. And this is what the world needs to see. This is our witness, our testimony. Not just words about the Bible, but that it's real, that we live it out. People can see it in us. So enough about that first word. He moves to uncleanliness. Wow. He moves to uncleanness, rather. Which is really just any kind of impurity. It's associated with filthiness. My mother was an old country girl. Old country girl. Dipped snuff from the time she was eight years old. Until it finally... Took her life, I understand. But regarding this issue of filthiness, she used to have a phrase. She used to say, that's just purity niceness. And I knew what she meant. It's filthy beyond filthy, whatever it was. I thought about that. Includes evil thoughts and intentions. So now, we're not just into the things done. Now we're into the things that we think about, right? Evil thoughts and intentions is what's included here when Paul uses this word uncleanness. 
So before we've ever done anything, as we understand from the Word of God, we can be guilty. We know that from Christ's own teaching, Matthew 5.28, But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, really? Yep. That's what he says. That's how important it is. Galatians 5.19 talks to us about the works of the flesh, and he includes this type of thing there as well. Keep your heart from Proverbs, and it's the same as saying keep your mind, keep your heart or your mind with all diligence, he says, for out of it springs the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23. Be careful about what you allow your your heart, your mind, your emotions to embrace. Be careful. Because there's a result. He says, out of that, kind of, let me put it this way, the springs the issues of life, which talks about our direction, what we focus upon, what we spend our time on, what we spend our money on, that which consumes us between our ears. It starts here and it starts here. So that's where we give attention. And if you're here today and you can't identify some internal mechanism that the Word of God has put there through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, I don't, it won't actually ring or chime, but it will be an awareness when these kind of dangers come into your life. That's what you'll get. And the Holy Spirit of God puts that there. I've heard... People refer to it, you know, quite simply sometimes as a check in my spirit. Okay, just a check. Just something there. Something there. Listen to that voice. So he's talking about this uncleanness. It involves any kind of evil behavior. Evil behavior, of course, begins with evil thoughts. We move on to the third word which is the word passion. And I understand from looking through this and checking a couple of commentaries, this word's, this particular word is used only in a couple of the scriptures. So it's pretty specific. It's the word pathos. And it talks about any kind of sexual passion, but it's more explicit than that. It's sexual passion that's, as he says, let loose in the body. It's already got some sort of reigning control within us. And it takes us to Romans chapter 1, quite frankly. The word is used there again in Romans 1, 26a there, where Paul says, For this reason God gave them over to vile passions. Okay. He's talking about people who have progressed to a degree that you can see. You don't have to wonder what they're thinking about. You can see it manifested in their life. They've been given over to vile passions. And if you read Romans 1, it's very eye-opening, is it not? It's a very... A very sound, very specific commentary, not just about what Paul was dealing with there. You know, when he wrote Romans, what did I say, AD 56? But when he, you know, or today rather, in our own world, just check them off. List the things that he's talking about. Yep, and they're not just, you know, seemingly present in our day in society. They're rampant. They're rampant. So this is a message that we need to hear and be reminded of from time to time. He tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And then in verse 5, he uses that word again, not in passion or lust, like the Gentiles 
who do not know God. So for sure, when we err in this area, we are, I guess you could say, above so many other things that are considered sinful, we're demonstrating activities, lifestyle, actions, words, whatever, that are most specifically associated with the lost world. That's what we're doing. Perhaps that'll help get our attentions wrapped around it when he talks about these, these passions. And we could go on and read, and if you have time, Mark, go back at some point and continue reading there in First Thessalonians. I won't do it now for the sake of time, but uh, read verse 6, 7, and 8. Just read that through. Read that together, verses 4 through 8. So we move from there to what Paul calls evil desire. And just looking at the words, you might think, well, he's toning it down a little bit. He's moving away from this. But no, you know, uh, understand linguistically, he's still talking about sexual lust that's created now in the mind. He's back to this. That which is created in the mind. Evil desire. This longing. Desire from within for something. James reminds us in chapter 1 of James. He's talking about the progression of sin and how it works its way out. We looked at this a, a few weeks ago. <clears throat> James says, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Talking about desire. It will conceive something. It will eventually produce something in our life. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Why? Because that's what sin brings in some fashion or another. Sometimes I think we think that we're immune to that. Because our penalty has been paid, you know, our, our eternity has been set for us. But there's all kinds of things to kill in our life as believers. You know, we can kill opportunities. We can do that in our life. We can kill influence. We can do that. So many things can be literally put to death in the negative sense, things that we don't want to kill. James reminds us of that. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil, we read in Proverbs 16, 17. And he adds that he who keeps his way preserves his soul. Just a general admonition about what? Staying on the right path. Having a desire to identify that which is good, that which is right, that we've already been encouraged about. You know, that which is virtuous, that which is praiseworthy, as Paul told us from Philippians. And allowing that to determine our direction. That's where we're going. We want to put away these other things that Paul here describes simply from the mind as evil desires. Then he talks about covetousness. This is the last one in this list here in verse 5. We're still on the first verse. Covetousness, or really, some of your translations may say, may say greed. And there was a note that said, you know, that this one is safe for last in Paul's list because perhaps it is the evil root of all of the other things. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Greed or covetousness, that desire that we just got through talking about. We know that it starts in the mind and the heart, you know, with the emotions, the desires of a person. And he says, this is where all these other things, these other four or five that we talked about, this is where they spring from. It's because we allow what we want, what we think we have to have, 
to get out of balance. And we, we, we forget sometimes that there, the things that we want are not necessarily in and of themselves bad. It's just that we want them apart from God's will and desire. I heard someone describe uh, sin one day, and we hear, you know, we know what sin is from the, the biblical definition, but they added, they said, you know, it's really just trying to meet your needs your own way. And that sounds very simplistic, but when you look at that, I would challenge you to think of a sin <laughs> that doesn't fall in that category. You're just trying to get what you want when you want it. You know, I like to eat. I, I enjoy food. I really do. But I have to be, be careful. I really do. There are things that are good for us. You know, sex itself is not bad, but it's to be, it's to be enjoyed the way God intended it to be enjoyed, enjoyed between a, ma- a man and a woman in marriage. That's what it's about. That's what His Word tells us. So that's difficult for some people. We live in a society that's stretching that just as far as it can be stretched to do away with the standard, with the foundation that we have. They want to see it go down the tubes, but it won't. But covetousness is listed at the end here. It's an unfettered desire for something. Unfettered, that is to say it doesn't have any restraints. doesn't have any restraints. It leads to a submission and domination of that which is sought. You focus on it too long, you deal with it too long, and that's exactly what you will be encumbered with. Lastly, he finishes this out by saying that covetousness literally amounts to idolatry. That's what it's about. It's about serving yourself. It's about putting yourself and your desires above everything else. It it places selfish desire even, of course, above obedience to God. 1 Corinthians 10.14 tells us to flee from idolatry. We've been told to flee sexual lust. We've been told now in 1 Corinthians 10.14, flee idolatry. And again, we live in a world that's all about us. I tell you, it's, in many ways, it should be easier to stand out as a Christian, to stand out as a person who follows Christ, because the difference is so striking. Is it not? In today's world, there's so much to stay away from. It's going to be costly, and it's going to become more and more costly for us as life in our times continues. I'm certainly no prophet, no prognosticator by any means but I can read and I can tell you it's going to get worse it's going to get worse we talked in our community bible group Friday night looking at those verses in Timothy that describe you know the way people think in the last days and it's Paul or yeah he just gives that long list of things you know disobedient to parents lovers of themselves all those things Uh, and we're there we're there let's get into verse 6 a bit because of these things Paul says that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience those who involve themselves in these things as a matter of lifestyle And remember when we're talking about this sinful conduct and activity we're talking about people who are given over to this you know I'm not talking about 
uh, you know, and when we always leave room for, I mean, when I'm talking about some born again person who got overcome by something, and this would be a, the the you know as tragic as it would be, it doesn't typify their life. I'm not talking about that. Only God knows that. But I'm talking about a practice, as we often see John talking about in First John, that which describes the intents, the way a person thinks, what they're directed toward. That's why Paul deals with all these things that highlight those very things, things that emit from the heart and from the mind. And because of the wrath of God, he says, it's, it's coming upon the sons of disobedience. And I enumerated some things uh, that I got from a, a MacArthur study, loss of love and respect, sometimes divorce, sometimes continual conflict in marriage, sometimes disease or any other kind of physical affliction that's associated with this kind of activity, loss of blessings in a person's life, greater trials and troubles brought upon an individual because of this, and even an untimely death. You'd have to throw that one in there as well. There is a payday, and it seems, as I said at the beginning, that so many times it seems that Sinful conduct in this particular realm, sexual conduct, brings its own brand of difficulty into a life. And some of them remain. You know, God can forgive and will. God can change. You know, people like to say that He can, whatever it is, uh, reproduce what the locusts have eaten. I don't know if that scripture particularly applies here, but we hear it. Yeah, God can replace and He can forgive. But sometimes our sins follow us, do they not? David was forgiven, was he not? He was forgiven, but the child still died. The sword never did depart from his house. You say, well, why there? Well, he had great responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. And we hear what the Word of God says. And the Word of God comes to bear on our heart and mind regarding these issues. Understand, we're more accountable. I can even say, if, you, if anybody came to class this morning, and based on what I've shared with you from God's Word, if you've learned something new this morning, then you're leaving here even more accountable because you know the Bible would teach us that. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes. Paul speaks of the sure consequences of sin. It's going to happen. The wages of sin is death, we know from Romans 6.23. And we talk about God's wrath here. I love um, seeing God's wrath broken down because I never thought about it until I saw it broken down. But, you know, He has an eternal wrath, does He not? We'll just chase this just for a minute. You have that kind of wrath or that kind of judgment from God. We can read about that in the Word of God. We know that's going to happen in the end. We know how the culmination of all things happens and there's a new heaven and a new earth that's all done away with. We know there's an eternal fire, you know. and hell. We know that. That's one kind. There's also an, an, uh, what's referred to as a, a scatological type of wrath. You know, we see those things, you know, that Daniel talked about. We see the things, of course, in the Revelation where God's judgment, you know, like the bold judgments and the seals and all that, scatological wrath. And then you have this calamitous wrath, okay? Things like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, God's wrath coming down, like the flood even, the flood. You see those things depicting the wrath of God. Then you have consequential wrath that we get, you know, of course, from 
Galatians 6, 7, you know, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man or woman sows, that will they also reap. That's consequential wrath, consequential judgment. It follows our sins. We've talked about certain kind of things that are pertinent or related to, specifically related to sexual sin. And then there's that other kind that we don't think about, another, a fifth area that uh, demonstrates God's wrath. And quite frankly, it's abandonment. Though it may be temporary in the life of a believer, it's when God takes His hands off. When He says, okay, if the only way you can listen to me, if the only way you can get it is to get what you want, and then perhaps you'll turn to me, then so be it. Have you seen God do that in His Word? He did that with national Israel, did, they, did He not? Give us a king. We want a king. We want a king like the other nations. The other nations make fun of us because we don't have a king. Well, I got you a king. He's coming. He's out in the sheepfold right now. He's out there. He's coming. You just wait on God. No, we want a king. We want a king right now. Okay, I'm going to give you one. Get Saul over there. Oh, man, he looks like a king. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. He looks kingly. The other nations are going to love this. Second choice, you know, David was God's first choice. You ever felt like God gave you what you wanted because that was the only way he could teach you to rely on him? Man, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I hesitate to mention any country song, (laughs) but I'm thinking of some lyrics right now. I thank God for unanswered prayer. You know that song by Garth Brooks, you know. And the story there is a guy thought he was in love with a girl in high school and he prayed and he didn't get her. And now he's back at a football game and he's glad he didn't get her. He just looks at his life and what happened in his life. Thanks, Garth, for contributing this morning. (laughs) But we think about that, don't we? What we ask God for. And the Scriptures that tell us, man, we don't know how to pray. We don't even know what to ask for. He knows beyond us. He knows. You have to be careful even in our flesh. Paul knew that in judging himself. He said, I don't even judge myself. I don't really care what y'all think is what he's saying. I'll paraphrase. He says, I don't judge myself. He wasn't saying it in an arrogant way. He was saying it with the realization that he knew he still had the flesh and that he had the potential of that remaining flesh even tainting his judgment about himself. He said, God will judge one day and God will judge rightly. Why am I saying Put your desires, the things that you want, whatever they are, put them before the Lord. Let Him teach you what you should want. I tell you what, that's lordship. That's what that is. That's trusting God to change your mind, to change your desires. Not to give you everything that you want, the things that you might think are good and right, and they may be. It just may not be God's will. Or it may not be God's will for you right Now, that could be it. That could be it. Lastly, he says that this wrath is going to be revealed. And he mentions this word at the end. uh, uh, Well, I'm down to Romans 1.8. I'm sorry, I bumped a verse on you. Let me read it. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And just a word about that word, unrighteousness, it literally means everything you think, everything you do, and everything you say. That's what the word used there in the original language would connote. True believers experience the wrath of God, 
in his chastisement and in loss of reward. We know that from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And then again from Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 15, when he talks about loss of reward. Verse 7 says that these are the things in which you yourselves once walked. Hallelujah. The emphasis being on once. <laughs> you once walked there, but you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. I could go on. I'm going to stop right there. It's a good place to stop. And uh, perhaps sometime in the future we can get back to this. If we do, we'll pick up with the next list that Paul gives us because he talks about anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. He has some more stuff to talk about. But keep in mind, this is what he's doing. He's got his arms around the people in this church. And he wants to remind them about the dangers that are out there. Psalm 119 talks about, By your word I am warned. And God warns us. But He reminds us that He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. We possess His Spirit we can be overcomers. He tells us regarding Satan's evils. He says we don't, we're not ignorant of his devices. We can see clearly the landmines, the spiritual landmines that we need to sidestep. We have that capability because of the Word of God and because of the indwelling Spirit of God. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, we do thank you this morning. We thank you for your Word. We pray, Lord, that you will use it in our life to continue our sanctification, to mold us, to be more like You, and therefore greater use can come out of us for Your kingdom. Help us to bring honor and glory to You in all that we think, do, and say. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.